you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look today at verse 42 and then also at verse 46 and 47. We return to our study in the book of Acts when we came back into the new year after a couple of sermons to kick off the new year, and here we are. We were intending to serve the Lord's Supper today and celebrate communion but consider this uh, preparatory and uh, introductory for next week, and we will serve the Lord's Supper and uh, celebrate communion together, Lord willing, uh, but I want to speak on the subject devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, in the book of Acts, we have discovered so far that the Holy Spirit empowers churches and believers to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. In Acts, we have the history of the Christian church, the spread of the gospel, as well as the opposition to it. But it was in the midst of that opposition and difficulty that the early church was born that the spread of the gospel became most intense. The church grew and spread as they focused on Jesus and as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're considering Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 to 47 in parts or in sections. We emphasize last what it means to be devoted to fellowship. You'll remember that fellowship is grounded in our status as spiritual family, that we are one in Christ. Fellowship also is motivated by our love for others, and then we exercise that and we live that out in our daily lives. And our fellowship is a powerful witness to the world because as they see us in Christ serving and loving one another as well as serving and loving the world, then they see Christ in us. So I begin reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, and here's what the scripture says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 46 says... Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We know that the practice of the early church in the ordinary routine of life was that they would come together for common meals, and those common meals would also include the breaking of bread in a general sense as well as in the sense of the Lord's Supper. So there's regular eating and breaking of bread, but then this phrasing was used to identify the Lord's Supper being practiced and uh, recognized and celebrated among them. There is some nuance and there are some differences of opinion about what specifically the breaking of bread means. And Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 summarizes really the practice of the early church. And there's nothing in that phrase, breaking bread from house to house, that would indicate a formal worship service, but that would later be set forth in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where it brought together the breaking of bread of the congregation and then specifically the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, and here it is, to break bread. Now, this was a church assembly on the first day of the week when the disciples came together uh, to worship the Lord. And their purpose for assembling together was to break bread. 
And 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16 connects communion, the breaking of bread, and the Lord's Supper. And it says this, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This reference comes between two terms in verse 42, fellowship and prayers. In verse 46, the phrases broke bread and ate together are purposefully separated. Their main meal would take the bread and the wine, and then they would celebrate Jesus together. So here's what I think this is indicating. I believe the phrase, the breaking of bread, is a figure of speech that might be referred to as a part that stands for the whole, meaning that the phrase includes both the bread and the cup, and it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, or to communion. Now, I want you to listen to what our Baptist faith and message says about the Lord's Supper. It says the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. You remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he took a, a loaf of bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Each celebration of the Lord's Supper that includes the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup of the fruit of the vine is a celebration of Jesus. The broken bread specifically symbolizes the body of Christ. And the symbolism of Christ as the bread of life, the only bread that will satisfy us eternally. And we bring ourselves broken to the cross because of our sin. And we believe that what Jesus has done on our behalf is sufficient for our salvation. Jesus said in 1 Corinthians, or, or Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, in remembrance of what Jesus had said to him, this is my body broken for you. This is my body broken for you. And then the cup, of course, representing the blood, which I'll cover a little bit more as I move through this message. So I'm going to ask this question. In these few moments that we have together, in light of this, how should we approach the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper? How should we come and prepare ourselves to come to the table? And then what does that mean? What does it symbolize? What all is coming together as we celebrate this memorial feast. Well, first off, you should look back and consider what God has done. We look back and consider what God has done. We look back at the cross, and we know when we look back at the cross that we can say, just as Jesus said, it is finished, that our redemption has been secured because of what Jesus has done for us. The Lord's Supper first looks back, and Jesus uses the elements to teach us about the cross. The Lord's Supper is full of meaning, instituted by Jesus, reminding us that any relationship that we have with Him is based on the forgiveness and the righteousness that we receive from Him as a gift. And Jesus said this when He instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 and verse 26. It says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then verse 27, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus said that the bread is his body, 
and the cup is his blood. This points to the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are two ordinances or symbols that we celebrate, we observe in the New Testament church. One is baptism. And baptism symbolizes that we are identifying with Jesus, that we are publicly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are saying that Jesus is our hope, and we are not ashamed of the gospel. It's our entry point into the New Testament church after we've placed our faith in Jesus. The Lord's Supper symbolizes that we are dependent on God's grace for all things. And we want to be faithful to Christ and to his church. So as we look back, there are some specific things that are taking place. We're first of all considering Jesus. We're looking back. It is good to remember. Just recently I was visiting my family and my mother and I were looking through some old pictures that I had not seen or even thought about for a long time. And those old pictures brought back a lot of memories. And I printed out some of those pictures on a color printer just because I was enjoying looking at them. And on one of those pictures are my grandparents, Otto and Ona Polk, Papa and Grandma Polk. On another picture uh, is my other set of grandparents, uh, Reverend John K. Manley and uh, his wife, Gladys, uh, Nanny and Papa Manley. On another picture that I had was my Nanny Manley standing at the top of a mountain. And then finally, I found an old picture of myself as well, looking rather mischievous, and um, pulled that out. And I was thinking, well, I wonder what I was thinking when I was looking like that. But at any rate, these pictures had the effect of bringing up memories, causing me to think back to things that were important, to people who were important, to circumstances of life that were important. And when we come to the Lord's table and we look back, we are doing the same in a sense. Because we're looking back and we're considering Jesus and what he's done for us. We're not just considering Jesus the person, though. We are considering Jesus and the cross. Because we know that the spotless Lamb of God died for our sins. We know that the message of the gospel is that God placed our sins on Jesus. The one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as we consider the cross, we are remembering the suffering of Jesus and his death on the cross. In fact, listen to what 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 says. It says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For his, by his wounds, you were healed. Consider Jesus, consider the cross, and then consider forgiveness. The old covenant sacrifices could not take away sin permanently like Jesus does. Hebrews 10 and verse 16 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The only way that our sins are forgiven, that our iniquities are remembered no more, is because we receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus through repentance and faith. So much so that when God sees us, he sees us not as the sinners that we were. He sees us in Christ. He sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. And we realize that we are forgiven. The death of Jesus brings with it the benefits of the new covenant. You remember those promises that, that Jeremiah prophesied about a new heart and the significance of the new covenant that would come in the future. So when we look at Jesus and we look back 
we look to him as the great high priest. He's the one who offered himself up for us. He's the lamb of God who is sufficient to save sinners like us. So think about it this way. Jesus purchased your salvation on the cross. Jesus entered the holy place and he didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats. When Jesus entered the holy place, he offered himself and our debt was forever paid. It was canceled and our past is our past. And this means now that we have a new life when our faith is in Christ. So I say to you, when we come to this table, we come with a deep sense of gratitude for all that God has done. And we look back and we consider what God has done. But then second, we should look within and consider your relationship with God. Look within and consider your relationship with God and make sure that there is nothing hindering it. And I believe when you look to Jesus that you will have a clearer view of yourself. When you consider the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and think about the uh, immense grace that has been shown to you and what it means to be in a relationship with God, then you'll understand better the magnitude of what God has done. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gave instructions for the church when they took the Lord's Supper. And just as the, in the early church described in Acts, the church at Corinth had a similar practice of a meal, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, observe communion with that regular meal that they were having. But the problem was some of the people were coming to this memorial meal, and then when they were coming to this memorial meal, some of them were actually coming drunk. Some of them were having other people leave hungry. So Paul enters into the discussion. He recalls what Jesus has said to him, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He records it for us in 1 Corinthians, and he gives us several warnings. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27 and 28 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now here's what he says in the next part. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let me summarize this for you. The word to us is, you better do a heart check. Now a heart check's good just in general. You don't have to wait for the Lord's Supper to have a heart check. In fact, not only should we repent when we place our faith in Jesus, but we should be a people who live repentant lives where we stay prayed up. We confess our sins. We make it a regular part of our walk with Christ. But to examine yourself means to do a personal inventory of your relationship with Jesus. And we know that the, that the scripture teaches that we are to live as a holy people, that we're not to continue in sin so that grace can increase, uh, but rather we are to live for Christ. So how can we consider our relationship with God? Well, you need to consider your heart before the Lord. Let me ask you a question right now. Are you hot or cold spiritually, or are you lukewarm? You see, Jesus had something to say about that. Our hearts should be hot. We should be zealous and passionate, fervent about the things of God. Make sure that you are holding fast to Christ as your hope. And then consider your sins that need to be confessed. The Lord sees the totality of our lives. 
It's always amazing to me. Somehow, as, as human beings, we think that we can hide things or conceal things from God. Or we act like, if we just uh, act like we don't remember it or know anything about it, that somehow God didn't know that it actually happened. Well, let me just remind you, God sees everything. There is nothing hidden from his sight. And to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord means to come to the table in a way that dishonors Christ. We don't want to dishonor Christ at the table, and we don't want to dishonor Christ in our daily lives either. Come with your affections, your motivations, your ambitions, and offer it all up to God. Say, God, would you, would you search my motivations? Would you help me know not only what I'm doing, but would you help me evaluate why I'm doing it? Would you help me understand where my affections are and if my attention is on Christ and where my ambitions are? What am I really seeking in life? What do I want out of life? Is it driven for my own personal preferences or my own ideas? Or is it focused on what God's best is for me? And I believe the Lord's Supper provides a frequent reminder that we relate to God at a heart level and he sees it all. Come to the table with a deep sense of repentance, trusting in God to sanctify you and to make you more like Jesus. And then look around, thirdly, at the family of God united in faith. Look around in your life and consider your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that pride is the main root of all sin. And pride fuels selfishness selfishness fuels an unhealthy independence but watch what happens in the church being united with other people in faith is part of the antidote to this now we are first united with god in christ and then we are united with one another you remember what the bible says one lord one faith one baptism this is our common heritage. This is our spiritual family that we relate to one another in. And table fellowship especially denotes being together and trust. And this is falling by the wayside in this fast-paced society that we live in. We're losing connections more and more. But when we come together in the fellowship of God and we come together around the table specifically, it nourishes us. Someone's described the, the dinner table as a place of connection and brokenness and blessing. And as a place of connection, we're fully alive when we're sharing a meal around the table. At the center of our spiritual lives as God's people, uh, we find a table in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a table, in a sense, in the Passover. And then we come to the table of communion. As a place of blessing, we remember the blessings of God and we, we bless one another as we gather together around this table. And every bit of it is a tangible reminder of the grace of God. And I believe as a place of brokenness, we find connection and belonging. Despite our best efforts, all of us from time to time, are subject to being like Peter in the Bible. We're subject to failures. And when we strengthen the bonds of fellowship and we walk the road of discipleship, we can not only find our own way, but we can find our collective way. 
And that's the beauty of the church and the relationships that we have in it. I say to you, come to the table with a deep sense of spiritual family and what it means to be united in Christ. We don't think about the church as a uh, simply a place to attend or something that we consume, a product that is to be consumed. We're not consumers. We're worshipers in this regard. We are servants of God. We are co-laborers together in Christ. We're the family of God. We're children of God. And all these things bring us together. Even though we're very different, we have different backgrounds and experiences and everything else, we are one in Christ. And we have a common mission and a vision and a purpose. And that's why we do what we do. And then finally, you should look ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We looked back. We looked within. We looked around. And now we're going to look ahead. We look ahead to Jesus with anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You remember the instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word for proclaim is used as well in the proclamation of the gospel. So this is a proclamation of the gospel, but it's with specificity of the proclamation of the return of Jesus. And the return of Jesus then points us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper together could be our last time in doing so on this earth. Every time we come around the table or every time even we come around a common meal that doesn't include the Lord's Supper, we might be together for the very last time. How do I know that? Because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Life is like a vapor. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. We're guaranteed nothing. God knows the bookends of our lives. So how are we to respond to that? Should we worry? Should we fret? Absolutely not. We should place our trust in Him. We should know that every day that He's given us is a blessing. But even as good as the best day on this earth could possibly be, there is a day coming that is going to be far better. And not only is there a day coming that is going to be far better, there is an eternity coming that is going to be far better. And we need to prepare ourselves and get ready for that day. In Old Testament prophecy, when the prophets wanted to speak of the day when God's reign would finally come in its fullness, what did they speak of? Well, I'll tell you, they spoke of a great feast. Listen to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 25 and verse 6. The Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. When all wrongs have been made right and Jesus returns, there will be an extravagant meal in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did so with anticipation. Jesus knew that there is coming a day in the coming kingdom when all of God's people will be together. And we will celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we will celebrate the fact that we are in the presence of God for all of eternity. And we will celebrate the Lamb of God who gave his life for us on the cross. I think about the vision of John in Revelation 19 and verse 7 through 10. John saw and heard the heavenly multitudes praising God. Why were they praising God? Because the wedding feast of the Lamb, literally translated as the marriage supper. 
we can gain context for understanding from the, from the wedding customs of ancient times. The weddings would have three main parts. They would begin, first of all, with a marriage contract, which began a betrothal period. Then it would be followed by the bridegroom and his friends going to the house of the bride later on. And finally, the wedding itself. And that wedding celebration was something else. Now, we think we've really done something if we have a wedding uh, celebration that might last a few hours. Uh, but these people would have wedding celebrations that might last days or even weeks. They, they knew how to do it right. And the celebrations that they had anticipate the type of celebration that we will experience in eternity. I believe that John's vision pictures the third phase of that marriage process that I talked about with the lamb being Jesus, the bridegroom, and then his bride, the church. At the marriage supper will be believers who have called on the name of the Lord. And as the angel told John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, let me tell you, church, it's going to be a glorious celebration. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we shouldn't come just as though it's just routine. Although there is a routine sense to it as often as we do it. We come with a sense of holy celebration and anticipation. That there is something far better coming. And that's the promise of the Word of God. That, that should stir us up. It should cause us to be even more faithful. It should cause us to be even more joyful. It should cause us to be even more fervent as we serve God. Because we know this is a dress rehearsal for eternity. And the marriage supper will not begin until the groom appears. All the focus is on him. All eyes are on him. And it's going to be a celebration that has been specially prepared for us. And that says to us, we all live in a state of holy readiness. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're anticipating the meal when the entire church of all the ages will gather for one purpose. And that is to give praise and glory to the Lamb. So I say to you, come to the table with a deep sense of hope for all that is ahead of us all that God has promised in his blessings. As I close, the breaking of bread should be with joyful and sincere hearts. It should cause us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Look back at all that Jesus has done, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Look within and consider your relationship with God. The Bible says if you will confess your sins that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Don't live in an unrepentant state where your relationship with God is hindered. And then look around at the body of Christ. Be reminded that we're not in this alone. We are the family of God. And then look ahead and anticipate the blessings that are to come when we're in the presence of the Lord. That's the significance of the breaking of bread. That's the significance of the table. But you can only come to this table rightly if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't just come because it's an aspect of worship. It's the Lord's table. You say, well, how can I know Him? You can know Him by realizing that there is a holy God who has created all things. 
He's made you in his image for a relationship with him. But the Bible says that sin entered into the world because of the disobedience of people. And when that sin entered into the world, there was the fall and death followed. And had God left us in that state, we would be broken eternally, separated from him, dead in our trespasses and our sins. But God promised that he was going to send a deliverer, and that deliverer would be the Messiah, and the Messiah would be Jesus the Savior. And Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life, and he uh, fulfilled the law of God at every point. He was willing to die on the cross. He substituted himself for us. He died in our place. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And when he died on the cross, he died to take away our sins, to pay the just penalty that we deserved. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And the Bible says that on the third day he was raised from the dead. And if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are you saved? If you're not, today would be a good day to get saved. It would be a good day to repent of your sins, turn away from the life that you're living, and turn to Jesus in faith, and he'll save your soul. And then you can come to the table and you can celebrate all the benefits and all the blessings that we've talked about. If you know him today, you've got a lot to be thankful for. And as we go to the Lord in prayer and then we close out with a final song, would you take a moment as we bow our heads together and just thank God for his grace. It is grace upon grace. Every morning that we wake up, we can say, God, thank you for your grace. And I thank you for another day of life. I want to use it well for you. Father God, we thank you today for that grace that we've talked about. We thank you for the celebration of the Lord's Supper that is a reminder visibly of the body and the blood of Christ, the great price that was paid at Calvary. And as we gaze upon the cross, we are overwhelmed by what took place there and what Jesus did on our behalf. We thank you that Jesus is victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And I rejoice with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I pray that our hope and our trust would be in Jesus in all things, not just at the point of salvation, but that our lives would be wholly surrendered, that we would see that we have a purpose for living in this life and in this world. And God, that you would help us to be faithful in it. I thank you for the body of Christ and the blessing that we have to, to know you, but also the blessing we have to be called children of God. May we use that well and may we draw closer together. May we be a people who are a loyal people. May we be a people who love one another, who are there for one another, who are supportive, that can be counted on, that are honest with our words and faithful in our deeds. And I pray that as we relate a spiritual family that it would honor Christ in all things. God, I pray today for any who are under the sound of my voice who may not have yet trusted in Jesus for salvation. There is only one way of salvation, and his name is Jesus. And I pray in these moments, if there are any who would desire to move from death to life by trusting in Jesus, that they would, and they'd be born again. God, you change their life forever, so much so that they too would be around that table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long for the return of Jesus. And our prayer is, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we await you. And we look forward to being together in heaven. So God, bless our day. Bless our week as we look to you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.